Hello and welcome to The Rate Debate. I'm Darren Langer, co-head of fixed income at Yarra Capital, and joining me is my special guest this month, Yarra's head of credit, Phil Strano. Phil is the portfolio manager of the Higher Income Strategy. Welcome, Phil. Hi, Darren. Uh, yeah, thanks. It's always great to, to be on The Rate Debate. This is my second one. Yeah, I'm really enjoying the opportunity to uh, have a chat about um, today's meeting. Yeah, well, uh, unfortunately, uh, we've seen the RBA meet and uh, pretty much as expected, they, they didn't change interest rates. Um, I, I guess the, the surprising thing more about was that uh, the biggest change was probably changing uh, Phil Lowe's name to Michelle Bullock. The rest of the statement was almost identical. So it uh, wasn't a lot of change. Um, I'm guessing that's partly to smooth the transition from one to the other to make sure the market understands that there's not going to be any great big changes. But I got to admit, I, I don't think I've ever seen a statement change so so little. <laughs> Most economists still have one more rate rise by the end of the year. That would probably mean that it's basically the Melbourne Cup meeting was potentially live. What's your view, Darren? I find it hard to, to see another one. Um, given we saw markets sell off you know, 40, 50 basis points this month, the market seems to be far more concerned about what's going on out there than than the RBA seems to be. Take it on face value, I'd say they're they're going to sit on hold for another month. They may want to see, you know, they've still got one more in December if they really want to. But you know, I, I'd say they're they're probably on hold now, um, unless there's a really big jump in inflation in the the next lot of prints. You don't think that she wants to kind of stamp her inflation fighting credentials. Yeah, I'm not really sure that's how central banks work. You know, they don't tighten interest rates unless they absolutely have to. You know, if she sees the need to change monetary policy, she'll do it. But just to do it, just to keep the market on some sort of, I guess, campaign against fighting inflation at all costs, I just don't think the the central bank works that way. Well, I guess we'll see come uh, Melbourne Cup Day. Yep. No, well, that's true. Uh, every meeting is is always live. And I, I think, you know, they've still got a tightening bias in there. They certainly haven't uh, moved away from that. But I, I think that's pretty normal. You'll usually see the tightening bias will go out the window the month before they actually start to ease. So I think that's going to be there. For some time and i think you know internally we're still sort of talking mid next year before rate cuts come along so it could be a, a pretty boring couple of months so it's probably just as well we have a few less meetings next uh, next year than what we had this year <laughs> well yeah the rba being boring but the markets aren't certainly that's for sure september was a pretty awful month again for for bonds it seems to be coming a, a rather uh convenient uh, fact about bond markets that september just has to be an awful month although it was quite interesting it was awful from a rates context but we actually saw some pretty good um, performance in in spreads. What do you think is driving spread markets at the moment that's keeping them happy, but keeping rate markets, uh, you know, bubbling along on the opposite path? I think ultimately it comes down to the economy. So unemployment's still really low. You've got certainly governments in the US being kind of reinforcing, uh, basically going against monetary policy, uh, the budget deficits being as, as high. I mean, I saw a chart today where the budget deficit, well, I think it's roughly about 8% US budget deficit at the moment. It's not that far away from, from uh, the simulatory action in response to the GFC back in 2009. Yet during the GFC, we had obviously a, a severe recession and lived sound employment in the US. And currently unemployment in the US has got a three-handle. So if you ask me why it's spreads are performing, it's because the US economy in particular and, and, and to the same degree in Australia is, is kind of continuing to perform to a point where certainly investment grade, investors have the confidence in investing in, in quite attractive outright yields of uh, you know six and a half, seven percent 
circuit that uh, kind of gives them confidence and not worry too much about what the actual outright credit spread is, but just focus on the yield. Yeah, we've talked about this before. It's it's really a, a good balance at the moment between credit and rates, something we haven't seen for, for quite some time. And I guess the, the other... I guess, comforting thing for credit investors is probably that if they do need to cut interest rates further down the track, that's probably going to ease some of the the pain, I guess, from higher credit spreads if we do end up in a recession. So we're in a much better spot now than where we were two years ago, where where everything was flat and low. <laughs> you know, I, I think whilst that's the case where there's kind of um, still pretty meaningful growth and quite low unemployment, then kind of default risk from an investment grade standpoint is, is pretty minimal. And yes, people continue to focus on outright yields. And as a credit manager, it's, it's a pretty good position to be in. Yeah. Some of the some of the things we have started to see, though, is there's more and more reports about um, consumer stress, particularly mortgage holders. And we're talking about people that are okay because they have a job. But you know, one of the things we've obviously seen central banks globally try and do is to, to try and kick employment a little bit higher. You know, what are you sort of seeing in terms of the risks from mortgage market and what are the potential ramifications for the broader economy? Yeah, look, it's a really interesting environment. If you had told me that house prices would be back roughly where they were before the interest rate time normalisation started, I would have said, I would have laughed, thought that you're crazy. But here we are, where basically house prices have gone up for the last five or six months and uh, are not too far away from, from where they, they began before interest rates started rising from 10 basis points. So when you think about it from a kind of structured credit RMBS standpoint, it's incredibly bullish for the asset class because, you know, theoretically you can have 100% defaults and, and not lose a dollar on, on structured credit because basically the, the stock that's sold is not going to be sold at a loss from a, a credit standpoint. So that's incredibly bullish. But I think what's happening ultimately is, and it's something that I think has kind of escaped us for a little while, is just the extent to which a services economy expanded over the last 20 years and how much it can contract. You know, how much money consumers actually spend on discretionary that can be reprioritized to letting their mortgage payments. And I think that's why you're seeing you know, arrears kind of holding there pretty well, mortgage arrears, and you're seeing house prices in conjunction with what is a pretty tight housing market and pretty high immigration levels performing the way it is. So I do think that that ultimately, when you think about it from the other standpoint, and that if consumers overall that are stressed are reprioritizing discretionary spending, then that obviously means there's, there's, there's other segments of the market that are likely to suffer. And we've kind of already seen a bit of that in terms of retail. And I think there's probably uh, more sectors around hospitality as well that will um, continue to struggle. Yeah, I think when uh, we were talking sort of early this year, um, house price declines of 10, 15% based on on the rates alone, you know, no one was sort of factoring in the fact that the government was going to let 400,000 people into the, into the country. And I think also some of the changes around some of the, the rental market with Airbnb have probably changed some of the, the pricing on housing. But I guess that is one of the, the truly good things at the moment, even if we do see a little bit of a higher unemployment it's still not going to be high. Even if we had a half a percent decline in, in employment, you know, we're still not employment at really stress levels or what we used to think of that. But you know, having has higher house prices, even for sellers are probably not going to end up too far out of pocket, which is a far different cry from where we were talking, you know, really deep fifteen percent sort of losses on, on homes. So I guess, you know, we, we probably haven't engendered a pretty good outcome. But I, I guess the one thing I sort of look is that 
you know, how much damage are we doing to other parts of the economy? And, you know, that's still, the money has to come from somewhere. <laughs> There's no question about that. And I think that's probably still largely to play out. As we know, monetary policy works on a lag. So, yeah, I think going into 2024, we'll probably start to see that. Now, you know, the question is, is like you said before, is where unemployment gets to. If unemployment uh, sort of remains by end of next year, as the RBA expects, around about 4.5%, that's right, then you can see that, that, that the economy is still going to be on a, on a pretty good uh, position to uh, perform reasonably well, albeit there will be pockets that, that will struggle. So if we look a little bit further into sort of what default cycles used to look like before uh, quantitative easing wiped them out, you know, I, I have to go back to sort of the 1990s to, to really think about a fairly severe consumer default environment. And you probably have to go back to the late 90s to sort of see something around corporates with any sort of you know size. Do you think the past gives us any clue to what we might see over the next couple of years as rates and, as you say, monetary policy lags start to kick in? Or do you think it's just too far away and too much has changed to really give us any view of what we're likely to see going forward? No, my own personal view is that uh, the, the next kind of default cycle is, is going to be akin to a more normal default cycle, akin to the 90s recession, akin to the dot-com uh, bubble and akin to the GFC. What we've seen since 2010, I don't think is normal, where you had quantitative easing, uh, a lot of liquidity in the marketplace, kept uh, a lot of corporates that were otherwise default funded. And you know, I think with QE now, yeah, obviously closing and uh, monetary policy normalising, we are likely to see a default cycle in, in high yield, in, in levered loans and in other private debt instruments. That'll be uh, more akin to the past cycles. Do you think there are particular industries that are vulnerable at the moment, or or do you think it'll be a more broad based um, sort of outcome? Oh, look, I think anything consumer led in the high yield space, particularly if they've got uh, characteristically, they will have you know, leverage multiples of uh, you know four or five times EBITDA. Their debt funding costs have more than doubled already, and uh, and that's with. Uh, a lot of them, you know, basically still having to mature, having to redeem or sort of refinance debt. So, uh, you know, their ability to kind of survive those kind of refinancing, you know, finding additional equity capital, particularly if you've got, uh, you know, their, their top line in terms of revenues and earnings impacted by by a decline in consumer discretionary spending, it's going to be incredibly difficult for those, for those companies to survive. To me, one of the interesting things is that back in the sort of, I guess, early to mid-90s, Australia really didn't have a high-yield market. It was really a, a bank loan market. Most of those borrowers were contained to bank exposures. They weren't really out with the average investor. They certainly weren't in funds. We've probably seen that change a little bit more where some of that lending has now been pushed out into the more the retail and um, wholesale sort of markets. Do you think that is likely to change the behaviour of the way the default cycle behaves given that perhaps some of those um, vehicles don't have the same flexibility that a bank does to sort of work through problems? Or do you think most of these structures are able to work through some of these problems that may may appear? These structures, once they become impaired, will be worked through regardless of who the end investor is. And really, it's a function of, of uh, the level of security an investor has. So, yeah, if they are in a senior secured position, then they have the ability to kind of take control but, you know, and then it really comes down to what the recoveries are like. And, you know, for some businesses, recoveries might be reasonable. For some businesses, they might be completely zero. You know, it depends on on uh, how much equity value is being, being destroyed and how 
further up the capital structure it goes. Well, the reason I bring it up is that one of the things you hear quite a lot is that Australia is mostly uh, an investment-grade market and investment-grade corporates don't tend to default. So, you know, in the past, we haven't really had much of, a, much of an issue with credit here. Obviously, in the US, they have a much bigger high-yield market and default cycles have been a lot more severe. Do you think we are likely to see more of a US-style outcome here or is the non-investment-grade market still too small to really cause you know ructions within the economy. So uh, the interesting feature about our high-yield market per se, it's a little bit more opaque. So, I mean, we're not going to have the same sort of quantum of defaults as the US, but certainly in relation to we won't be spared this time around because, I mean, what's happened since the GFC is is, is basically uh, the development of, of, of the private debt market in Australia where you've had a, a number of, of private debt funds start up that have been being doing exclusively kind of uh, hold to maturity, subject to impairment style assets that uh, have uh, zero liquidity and typically kind of high yield, pretty aggressive financial profiles, whether that be across property and uh, corporates that uh, probably the quantum has expanded significantly over the past 10 years since QE kind of pushed yields to really, really low levels. I think uh, the, the key is going to be liquidity and that's the one thing I think it's hard for for anyone to sort of gauge. Um, it tends to be one of those things that it gets a head of steam up. Um, you know, liquidity is there when you don't need it and isn't there the, the minute you do need it. So I think, you know, liquidity is ultimately going to play a part. And that, that's why I brought up the the idea that last time everything was contained within the banks. They, they manage their own liquidity, but, you know, investors can redeem out of fund structures and things like that. And you may not get the opportunity to work through a problem you might end up having to sell it. So I think, to me, that's going to be one of the more interesting things of how things play out over the next couple of years. And that's the one unknown we, we don't have an answer to. Now, I think this, a, lot of, a lot of the build-up in kind of private debt-style assets in Australia has been investor-led, important to note that. You know, a lot of them got uh, pretty worried about negative returns from the GFC from spread volatility, mostly, and uh, shied away from that kind of spread volatility and and uh, it was pretty attractive to sit in, into, you know, in hold some maturity kind of dependable income assets. And that kind of strategy worked really for 10 years. But now you've got a normalised normalized interest rates and you've got central banks that aren't necessarily playing their quantitative easing games anymore. And uh, it's a different game. Yeah, I think the, the lack of QE is, is, is going to play a part. I wonder too given the amount of money that we've talked about governments having spent already and us are still spending, whether um, the ability to do another large-scale quantitative easing program to save the day again is even a possibility given the, the level of debt that people are getting towards. You know, certain governments are already sitting well above 100% and some even above 150% of uh, debt to GDP. It's going to be interesting to see how these sorts of things play out, but... Um, I think that's probably going to be more a problem for, for next year than this year, but um, yeah, it certainly will be uh, something to keep an eye on. And I also think the other issues is that I think going forward, and I, I think you and I probably don't agree on this totally, but I think wage outcomes generally will be higher over the next 10 to 20 years than they have been over the past 10 to 20. I think people will basically won't be seeing their house price increasing, certainly at the rate that they've been accustomed to over the last 30 years, and they'll want more income instead. And I'll vote for it. Yeah, I think one of the other things that's also um, hard to sort of sort of get a grasp on, and I think it's one of the things we probably underestimated, is the fact that after COVID, the retirement generation is actually a lot more willing to spend money than probably their 
parents and grandparents were. And that's been one of the other things I think that's probably kept the economy chugging along a little bit better than what we might have expected. You know, I guess the the risk was always after an event like COVID that people would become more conservative and pull back on spending. But it seems to have been quite the opposite where, um, you know, the world opened up again and, well, off they went. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I mean, you're a self-funded retiree. You, 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 then you, you, you've got a reasonable um, balance sheet. Uh, I think you probably don't mind this period right now. And rightly so. Uh, they, did it, they did it tough for, for quite a while. Interest rates were so low. But now I think their incomes are, are well and truly uh, restored. To me, that, that's the big challenge for central banks is that monetary policy may no longer be as effective as it once was because you know we've, we can already see the mortgage belt is bleeding, but the self-funded retiree slash you know, independent retirees ultimately still able to spend without too much trouble and, and slowing them down is going to be a lot harder with monetary policy. So I think governments and, and central banks probably work more closely together going forward, but that still remains to be seen whether that'll happen. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, are they really? I mean, you look at look at the US in terms of what, um, what, what I spoke about before, where yeah, the budget deficit so is ballooning and, and working against effect. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Like that, that's what I mean. I think yeah, they have to start working together rather than um, at cross purposes. Which in the past you might have needed to do this, but I, I don't think you actually need to going forward because of that cohort. I mean, in ten years it'll all change around again when when that cohort is actually starting to reduce in size. But I think you know certainly for the next ten years things are probably going to be a little bit different on the monetary policy stance. Yeah, but it's also a case that I think government priorities are probably slightly different. They're not necessarily always going to choose the lowest cost option as they did prior to COVID. And I think that's the one thing that's probably changed. Well, that's it for this month. Uh, thank you for joining us, Phil. Thanks, Darren. It's always a pleasure to, to have a chat. And uh, yeah, look forward to doing it again sometime. Tune in next month when we will be joined by another special guest to help deliver our latest thoughts on the RBA's November rate decision and provide an update on what's been happening in markets. If you ever want to suggest topics or discuss anything further, both of us can be contacted at the rate debate at yarrascm.com. Thank you. The Rate Debate podcast content may contain general advice. Before acting on anything in this podcast, you should consider your own objectives, financial situation or needs, and seek the advice of an appropriately qualified financial advisor.